On New Year's Day, Dave and I went to see the movie, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's that film about Mr. Rogers, who was a Presbyterian minister, but after completing his training for ministry, he didn't feel called to preach in a congregation, but rather to make a difference in the world of television. The film is not so much about Mr. Rogers as it is about a relationship that Mr. Rogers shares with a professional colleague he meets along the way. Now, one of the actors in this film is the Oscar award-winning actor Chris Cooper. And I always love to see a film that includes Chris Cooper because Chris grew up just down the street here from the church in a house on Meyer Circle. And I knew Chris's dad, Dr. Chuck Cooper, and his mom, Mary Ann, they were both such lovely people and so faithful and generous to me and to this congregation. But once I moved to Kansas City, Chris had already grown up and gone off to launch his career as an actor. And so I was intrigued a few years ago when we were traveling in Boston and I picked up a magazine in Boston, which is where he now lives, and it told about how he first became an actor. He had graduated from the University of Missouri where he studied really the backstage of theater and he wasn't quite sure what to do with that and so he was working on his dad's cattle ranch and then he decided, you know, it's been my dream since I was 17 years old to actually act on stage but being painfully shy, he had never had the courage to try it. And now he decided that he and four friends would load up the car and head off to New York City and give it a go. And he backed up the car in the driveway there on Meyer Circle. And his dad, Dr. Chuck Cooper, turned to his mom, Mary Ann, and said, don't worry, honey, he'll be back in two months. <laughs> and he never came back, of course, because his dream his dream of acting became a reality. And Chris said in the article that he and his dad eventually saw eye to eye on this acting thing. And that his dad, he said, was one of the strongest, most moral, most excellent gentlemen he had ever met in his entire life. All of us, too, have dreams. And the question that we face at the transition point of a new year is whether or not we might actually pay attention to our dreams. After all, for every Chris Cooper, there are hundreds of young people focused on a dream that never quite pans out. And so we stand here together on the first Sunday of a new year, still in the first week of a new decade, trying to decide if we will follow our dreams or dismiss them and tuck them neatly away. Last year, Alice Robb wrote a book called Why We Dream, and she said that so many of us have been taught that our dreams are simply silly stories. She said that some people think of dreams as dandruff on the brain. They're just juvenile, self-indulgent, just shake them off and move on. You know, we use the word dream in two different ways in our English vocabulary to describe two different kinds of experiences. There are those dreams that we have while we're sleeping, 
and a common dream that I used to have, but I understand others have as well, is getting ready to take an exam. The day of the exam has arrived, and I have forgotten to either go to class or read the textbook the entire semester. And I wake up realizing I must be anxious about something. And then some of us say, well, I just never dream. Or if I do, I don't remember my dreams. But researchers tell us that we most likely do dream because dreams take place usually in our REM sleep, and all of us need REM sleep in order to be emotionally and physically healthy. So what do we do with dreams that we have that, well, they just don't seem to make any sense? Like the dream that Dave used to have that he was flying in the cockpit of an airplane. What does that mean? Or the dream of being on a train going somewhere you're not sure where. What do our dreams mean? Or should we just dismiss them? And then there are those other kinds of dreams, the dreams that are really more our goals. Some of us, like Chris Cooper, dream of acting on stage or dancing or singing on stage and making it big in New York on Broadway. My friends Mark and Laurel, they had the craziest dream. They dreamed that they would go out on the edge of Kansas City on a little piece of property and they would build with their own hands a geodesic dome house that they could live in in their retirement years. And a few months ago, they moved into that home. My granddaughter, who's nine, dreams of moving to Paris and becoming a baker. And don't you dare tell her that you need to be Parisian to do this kind of thing. Some of us have really more ordinary garden variety dreams. We dream of maybe just getting out of debt and having a few extra dollars so that we could travel. Or we dream of falling in love and having children and maybe grandchildren. And some of us have great big bold dreams like Martin Luther King who dreamed that one day little white children and little black children would play together in equity and harmony. But whether our dreams come to us in our waking hours or in our sleeping hours, whether they are completely logical or just wild and crazy, all of these dreams come from within us. Whether they are our subconscious at work or our self-declared goals, our dreams represent something deep within us, our own longings, our own feelings, our own gut, our own calling, and every day and especially at the beginning of a new year, we get to decide if we will pay attention to those dreams or dismiss them. The scripture lesson that we read this morning describes for us what happened after Christmas. The wise men who visited Jesus offering those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh are now warned in a dream to go home by a different road. I always laugh at myself picturing them waking up, yawning, stretching, one of them saying to the other, I had the craziest dream last night. Well, really, said another wise one, what was it? Well, I dreamed that we didn't do what we had promised. We didn't go back to Herod and tell him the location of the newborn child. Well, that's crazy. I dreamed that we were going home on a different road than the one we came I don't know how they figured out that they had a dream that they should follow. But what we know for sure is that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew 
moves the Christmas story along with dreams. This dream that we read about this morning is one of five dreams that takes place in the first two chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew moves the drama along with dreams. Joseph is the first to dream. He dreams that God tells him not to divorce Mary, even though she's pregnant and the baby is not his. And then the wise men dream to go home by another way. And if we were to keep reading a little bit further down, we would re read three more dreams of Joseph. Joseph dreams that he should flee to Egypt and take the holy family there so that they will not suffer because of Herod's wrath. And then he dreams that Herod is no longer on the throne and it's safe to go back. But then he dreams that Herod's son is on the throne and it's not safe and that he should settle now in this place called Nazareth. Every dream in this first two chapters is followed by the characters in the story as if it was God's divine guidance. And here's the funny thing. When Luke tells the Christmas story, not one dream shows up in the story. Matthew drips with dreams, but by starting the story that he tells with dreams, Matthew is echoing his, his audience's familiarity with the Old Testament story where so often the characters dream as a way of understanding God's divine guidance. For example, they all knew about Joseph the dreamer in the book of Genesis. And some of us know about Joseph the dreamer because we've seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat at Starlight or on Broadway. Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, tease Joseph and they say to him, you're no good, go away. They taunt him saying, ah, you're just a dreamer. And Joseph uses his ability to interpret dreams to save his family and to save his people. He interprets the Pharaoh's dreams to say, yes, a famine is coming. And he pays attention to his own dreams to figure out how to reconcile with his family. He listens to his dreams. And Joseph knew about Jacob, who also had dreamed, another character in the Bible who dreams of God descending on a ladder from heaven and ascending back, moving back and forth between heaven and earth. And so many of the prophets throughout the Old Testament are spoken to by God in a dream, and then they go out to take care of God's people based on what they heard in the dream. So Matthew, by emphasizing the role of dreams in the story of the birth of Jesus, is reminding all of us that the dream of God continues. When should we pay attention to our dreams? And when is it right to dismiss them? Even in the field of psychology, psychologists face this dilemma and are not sure how to answer it. Are our dreams simply our silly mind tricks? Or should we pay attention? In her book on dreams, Alice Robb tells about a group of neurobiologists led by Isabel Arnaf. They assembled at the Sorbonne in Paris, and they conducted a research study on aspiring young physicians who were trying to get into medical school. 
On the day of the medical school exam, entrance exam, some 700 students show up and they ask each one of them before the exam begin, have you dreamed about this exam? Dream, they said. We've had nightmares about this exam. We dreamed, some of them said, that we were writing the exam with an, a pen that had invisible ink in it. Or we dreamed that we couldn't find our way to the exam. Or another dreamed that he was reading the questions and he couldn't even decipher what the question meant, let alone come up with the answer. And then they discovered after the exam was complete that those who had the highest score on the exam were those who had dreamed the most in, in the weeks leading up to the exam. So is it possible that God can guide us through our dreams? When the wise man dreams, when Joseph dreams, when the prophets dream, they receive a message, a message about how to keep people safe, about how to protect God's beloved people. The wise men came and inquired. We read it. Where is the child to be born? And they quickly opened the Bible. They looked in their scriptures, and they saw what was written. Oh, they said, here it is. He's to be born in Bethlehem. And so in the story, the scripture, the written word of religion, is one source of God's guidance. But the other source is the dream. They learned the truth through the dream. There's another team of physicians that studied dreams. This team of physicians was working with hospice patients, trying to figure out the relationship between what we dream and the dying process. One doctor, reported Jan Hoffman, sat down with his 84-year-old patient who was in renal fail failure. They sat together at the kitchen table, and the doctor said, well, have you had any dreams lately? Yes, said 84-year-old Mr. Majors. I just dreamed that I was in the car with a dear friend, a man I haven't seen in over 20 years, and we're on a road trip, and my three teenage sons are in the back seat, and we're driving down the street on this road trip looking for the Grand Canyon, and all of a sudden, we realize it's right there. It's at the end of the street. It had been there all the time, and we hadn't even seen it. The doctor looked at Mr. Majors. Sir, your sons are in their late 50s and their early 60s. Why do you think that they play a prominent role in this dream? Mr. Majors told the doctor, my sons, my three sons, they are the greatest accomplishment of my life. And three weeks later, he died. In the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, the word God is seldom, if ever, mentioned. God seems hidden in the story. And yet, by listening to dreams, God's purpose for life is revealed. Sometimes we are reluctant to trust our own inner voice. We discard our gut instincts. We dismiss our own dreams as dandruff on the brain. And oftentimes, it's important for us to sit down and talk with someone else that we trust or a group to figure out how to discern the dream. But I love what Professor J. McDaniel says. I think we often forget this. He says that within each human being exists the indwelling lure of God. Within each of us, the indwelling lure of God. 
Harriet Tubman rescued more than 300 slaves in the Underground Railroad. Some of the slaves that she rescued were wrongly being held as slaves. They were free on paper, but unable to flee from their masters without fear of death. As she worked in the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman often fell into a deep dreamlike state and she received messages about danger on the road and she would reverse her course and carry the slaves to freedom. She called those dreams the work of the spirit. I don't know. Dreams, they can be hard to trust. Some of us dream of a world actually at peace. Some dream that all God's children will know justice. Some dream of making a particular change in our own personal life. Can the hiddenness of God be revealed when we pay attention to our dreams? Matthew concludes this whole gospel story with one more dream in all the years that I have read the Gospel of Matthew, I had never paid attention to this particular dream that shows up in chapter 27. It is the next to last chapter of the Gospel, and Jesus has been arrested. He is facing the trial before Pilate, and Pilate goes out and he says to the crowds, Who do you want me to release? I could release Jesus, or I could release Barabbas. And Pilate's wife sends an urgent word to her husband, and it is delivered to Pilate right in the middle of the trial. She warns him not to do anything to harm this one named Jesus because she has just had a haunting dream about the innocence of this one named Jesus. Pilate dismisses the dream. <laughs> 